Today, we're going to begin a three-part series on the mediatorial offices of Christ, that Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. Allow me, please, to set the stage uh, with a a rather lengthy introduction, but before I do, please, uh, let's pray together. Father in heaven, when we consider Jesus Christ and all that he is in and of himself and all that he has become for us, we rejoice. We want to know more about this, Lord. We want to know Jesus better. And today, as we consider him as the great prophet, I pray that his revelation of you, Lord, would be very clear in our hearts and our minds. I pray that as I present him, I will do so with clear and accurate terms. And I pray, Lord, that as we listen, uh, we will not just learn, but I pray that our hearts will swell with love for Jesus Christ. So help us, Lord, now to understand our mediator, Jesus Christ, through the preaching of the word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So here's what we're going to be looking at. The mediatorial offices of Christ. Uh, That's our topic. Uh, In that topic, three of those five words need to be defined. Uh, The only words that we actually know uh, without any definition are the words the and of. So we need to define mediatorial and offices and Christ. And we're going to look at them in reverse order. Uh, Let's start with the word Christ. In the Old Testament, the Messiah was the anointed one. Now, uh, it literally means anointed one. Uh, You know that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. So anytime you would see someone anointed, uh, literally it's a derivative of the word Messiah. Anyone who was anointed was a Messiah. And, uh, but I want you to think of it mostly in terms of small m, uh, even though they didn't have capital and small letters, just in your thinking, a Messiah, an anointed one. And that appears 39 times in the Old Testament, and it usually refers to human, earthly, prophets, priests, and kings in Israel. Well, the New Testament was written in Greek. And the word goes from Messiah to Christos. The Greek word for anointed or Christ is Christos. In English, we say the word Christ. So when we say Jesus Christ, what we are saying is Jesus, the anointed one. Uh, Christ is not the last name of Jesus as if Joseph's name was Joseph Christ, and then he married Mary, and they became Joseph and Mary Christ, and they had a baby, and the baby was Jesus Christ, like Charles and Irma Moore had a baby, and they named him Edwin, and I became Edwin Moore, Jesus Christ. No, Jesus Christ literally means Jesus, the anointed one, or Jesus, the Messiah. And in ancient Israel, they would anoint, or Messiah, or Christ, prophets and priests and kings. Let me give you a couple of examples of this. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 16, we see an example of God commanding Elijah to anoint both a king and a prophet. God is speaking to Elijah, Elijah who is the representative of the prophets, and he says, And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint, you shall Messiah, you shall Christ, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, 
of Abel Mihola, you shall anoint, you shall Christ, you shall Messiah to be prophet in your place. Uh, there are other examples of uh, prophets and uh, uh kings being anointed. Uh, but what about priests? Were priests anointed? Uh, indeed, they were. And this anointing would happen with oil. It would happen in a public place. It was a, it was a, it was a coronation, if you will, of a prophet or a priest or a king. Well, here's one for the priest. And this is Leviticus chapter 8, verse 12. And he, speaking of Moses, poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed or messiahed or Christed him to consecrate him. Now, I realize I'm using those words messiah and Christ in the wrong verb sense, but I think you get the, get the gist of what I'm saying here. So whenever a Jew in ancient Israel thought of anointing, they would most likely be thinking of oil being poured onto the head of a prophet or a priest or a king. Well, when we get to Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, he is anointed as all three. And today what we're going to be doing is looking at him as the prophet, and then next week we're going to look at him as priest, and then Lord willing, on Christmas morning, December 25th, we will look at Jesus as our mediatorial king. The next word in our glossary in the mediatorial offices of Christ is the word offices, when you think of offices, do not think about rooms with desks and chairs and computers, uh, but rather think of roles or functions. So, for example, when a president of the United States leaves office, it doesn't mean that they literally walk out of the Oval Office. It means that they are no longer in that role. They no longer have that authority. So when we speak of the mediatorial offices of Christ, what we are saying is these are the authoritative functions or roles of the Messiah. And there are three of them, prophet, priest, and king. If you want to impress all of your friends with uh, very uh, complex theological terms, don't know that this is going to help your sanctification, but it will make you look good when you're having a theological conversation. It is what the theologians, the three offices of Christ, they have referred to as the munis triplex. Munis is the Latin for office. Uh, triplex, there are three of them. Uh, when I first read this, I thought to myself, maybe I, I think I saw a movie at the Munis Triplex, uh, but then I realized that that was simply the multiplex, uh, different sermon for a different day. The final word in our definition of the mediatorial offices of Christ is the word mediatorial. And you can see in this word the word mediator. What is a mediator? A mediator is a person who helps to settle a dispute between two parties when there is a conflict. A mediator is a go-between or a middleman, an arbitrator. So in our relationship with God, we are by nature at war with him because he is holy and we are not. And someone has to step in between us and bring us together. And the only one that can do that is Jesus, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator. There's that, there's that word in our definition or our topic. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And um, we use forms of this word mediator all the time. 
For example, if you're talking about a fortune teller or a clairvoyant, uh, they are a medium. Uh, uh, they are connecting us with the dead. I don't know if you were watching Channel 4 News last night, but it appears as though, and I don't know all the details, over in, uh, I think it was in the Bronx, there was this uh, clairvoyant who had opened up uh, some sort of uh, uh, a palm reading uh, place, it was completely a fraud. Uh, turns out that uh, he was a rather short man, he wasn't tall at all. Uh, he was arrested, uh, he was taken to Rikers Island, and uh, he escaped. And so uh, now he is a small medium at large. <laughs> hey, we're done with judges. We can have fun now. A small medium at large. Um, even the word media, what does that mean? Well, here's information, and here we are. And what does the media do? The media gets in the middle and conveys that information to us. And so Christ, our mediator, gets between us and God and connects the two parties and put it all together. And what you have is the mediatorial offices of Christ, or quite literally, the go-between functions between the Messiah and, and as prophet and priest and king. Now, let me speak for just a few moments about uh, church history. Let me speak about church history. First and foremost, you need to know that these mediatorial offices of Christ are biblical. If they weren't biblical, it wouldn't matter how clean the theology was. They are biblical. Uh, but just like the word Trinity, you're not going to see the word Trinity in the Bible. In fact, you're not even going to see the word Bible in the Bible. But we believe that the Trinity is true because that is the witness of Scripture. Same thing with Calvinism. You're not going to see that in the Bible, but the points of Calvinism can be substantiated through the Bible. In the same way, the mediatorial offices of Christ, you're not going to see those words together you're not going to read about the munis triplex in the Bible, but just like the Trinity, uh, it is true. It's biblical and it is true. And the formation historically of the munis triplex was first laid out, or at least what we can detect was first laid out by Eusebius of Caesarea in the 4th century. And by the 4th century, I mean the 300s because he died in 339. But it was formulated um, uh, most thoroughly by John Calvin. He was the first to really develop the offices of Christ as prophet, priest, and king in his institutes or in his writings. But there was another guy, and I think he might not have written as prolifically as John Calvin, but I think he said it more devotionally, and his name was Francis Turretin. He lived from 1623 to 1687, and he was an Italian reformer, Listen as I quote Francis Turretin, how he speaks about our need for the munis triplex or the three offices of Christ. This is, this is beautiful. Uh, he writes, the threefold misery of men introduced by sin, ignorance, guilt, and tyranny or bondage to sin require a three, require the threefold offices of Jesus Christ. Ignorance is healed by the prophetic office, guilt by the priestly office, and the tyranny and corruption of sin by the kingly office of Christ. Prophetic light scatters the darkness of error. 
the merit of the prophet takes away our guilt and procures reconciliation for us. The power of the king removes the bondage of sin and death. The prophet shows God to us. The priest leads us to God and the king joins us together and glorifies us with God, end quote. And wasn't that well said? Or to put it in other words, we are ignorant and therefore we need a prophet to teach us. We are separated from God and therefore we need a priest to bring us to God and we are a mess. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We are a mess. And so what do we need? We need a king to rule over us and to protect us. Jesus is exactly what we need. And for the next three weeks, I'm, trying, I'm going to try to convince you that Jesus is all we need. The mediatorial offices of Christ. So the introduction is concluded uh, which brings us to today's topic, and that is Christ, our prophet. And we're going to use a three-point outline, and that is the problem, the promise, and the preacher. The problem, the promise, and the preacher. Point number one, the problem, as stated by Francis Turretin, the problem is ignorance. That is why we need a prophet. We left to ourselves look around and do the best that we can to arrive at truth whether it is through our senses, through our education, through a gut feeling, you're making your way through life and you're just trying to figure this whole thing out. And some people call it philosophy. Some people call it the meaning of life or my philosophy or as I see things or as my philosophy is akuna matata. It means no worries. It's it's just what I'm doing is I'm going through, I'm making my best guess as to whether or not it's right or wrong, making my best guess as to whether it is good or bad. But the Bible says in Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man. I want you to concentrate on the word seems, seems. Here's the key. What we think, how we are making our way through life, actually seems to us to be right. Every person thinks that they are right. If you thought you were wrong, you would change what you think. You can't believe something to be true and at the same time simultaneously know that it is false because the minute that you realize that it is false, you will stop believing it to be true. And so we're making our way through life thinking that what we are seeing is accurate, thinking that we are what we are feeling and what we are doing is the right thing to do. We are all just making our way through, but we're doing it based upon what we perceive, what seems right to us. We think that what we believe is true. We might have some uncertainties, but but life for a person is just basically making your way through with your best guess. And the problem is we are actually not seeing things as they are. What we see is distorted. We happen to be blind, spiritually blind, born with a susceptibility for lies and distortion and a propensity for gullibility and a nauseating acceptance to believe something that is false, compiled with a pig-headed confidence which says, I'm right, and the reason I know I'm right is because I feel as though I'm right. 
And so what we need with all of this uncertainty and this blindness and this distortion and this gullibility is that we need a teacher. We need someone to correct us. We need someone to expose our lies and our distortions. We simply put, need the truth. We need someone to tell us the truth. And who is it that does that? Well, that is a prophet. A prophet, by definition, is one who speaks for God to man. Uh, That is a prophet, one who speaks for God to man. And that is our need. We need a prophet. Scripturally speaking, uh, what is the proof that we actually need a prophet? Well, I think Paul sums it up best in Romans one twenty one when he says, their foolish hearts were darkened. In Proverbs 28.26, it says, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but man left to himself is perfectly content to trust in his own mind. And so everything that you see in society is man on their own trying to figure things out, whether it is through intellectual man who can write very thick volumes on philosophy or whether it's somebody who doesn't even know how to read and they're just sort of feeling their way through life by their senses. There's really very little difference between the two. It's man trying to make his way through life without any absolute direction. And because we have been blinded by sin and Satan, we are always going to get it wrong. Um, If you're at a child's birthday party and you're going to play this game called Pin the Tail on the Donkey, there's always that kid. And you know the kid that I'm talking about. The kid who, when you blindfold this child and you say to this child, can you see? And they say, no, I can't. But yet like one of their eyes is fully exposed and you spin them around, they're going to get it exactly right 100% of the time. Most kids, however, are going to comply and they're going to put the blindfold on correctly. You're going to spin them. They're going to move in the direction of the donkey trying to put the tail on and they're never going to get it right. They are always going to get it wrong. Well, you know what life is? Life is basically a big game of pin the tail on the donkey. What we need is for someone to come along who is a prophet to take off the blinder so that we can see where we're going. But we have another problem, and that problem is we have an adversary. We have an enemy. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26, it speaks of this enemy, the devil, who has taken us captive to do his will. And so that is why when we are dealing with people, Paul tells uh, Timothy, that if you're a servant of the Lord, you have to be gentle because, because maybe as you're teaching them, God might grant them repentance that they come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil who has taken them to do his will. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world, small g, speaking of Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Image of God is just as clear as can be in the person of Jesus Christ. But if you're blind, you can't see it. Why are we blind? We're blind because the devil has blinded us. So with that in mind, the best thing that could happen right now as you are listening to me preach this sermon is if God, by his spirit, would grant you a moment of clarity whereby he would convince you, hmm, I need directions. 
I am lost. I do not know where I'm going. Last night, we were in the city for a wedding, and as we were walking the streets of Manhattan, the one thing you need to know is that absolutely no one, zero, not one single person was from New York. How do I know that? They don't look like they're from New York. As they're walking around, they have something else, and that is they all are wandering around uh, uh, like, like, like they're being herded, and they don't know where they're going. And they look like they need directions. Excuse me, sir, do you, are you lost? No, I'm fine, I'm fine, I know where I'm going. But in reality, they don't. This is the way that human beings operate on planet Earth. We're going through, we need directions, but we don't know that we need directions. Here's what could happen today which would really help you, and that is that you would come to the realization that you need directions. You need a prophet. That is the problem. You need someone to show you the truth, and the Lord is the one that could show you that truth. Which brings us to point number two, and that is the promise. Point number one was the problem. Point number two is the promise. And that is that God always knew uh, that his people needed direction and truth. And so in kindness, what he did is he communicated to his people through prophets. He didn't have to communicate, but he graciously chose to communicate, and he did it through prophets, Hebrews 1.1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. Uh, And among the most prominent prophets were Samuel and Isaiah and Elijah and Elisha and Moses. Moses is one of the prominent prophets. And when we say a prophet, please don't just think that a prophet is foretelling the future, although that is one of the things that some of the prophets did. Uh, But that is not all that the prophets did. In fact, I would say that is not primarily what the prophets did. What prophets would do is they would speak to man from God and they would reveal information to man about God. And Moses made a very profound prophecy, and this is where I need you to stick with me closer than at any other point during the sermon. Moses made a very profound prophecy in Deuteronomy 18 about the prophet or that prophet who was to come. And so for the next several minutes, when I am speaking about the prophet or that prophet, it's important that you in your mind distinguish that prophet or the prophet from the prophets. Again, I would take you to capital P or small p, although they are not used in Hebrew or Greek, but simply to, but simply to say, think about capital P for prophet. Between the difference between the prophets, and there were many of them, and the prophet, and there was one of them, and what is that prophecy that Moses gave? Well, it's Deuteronomy 18:15, where it says, "The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him, it is to him that you shall listen." And then you skip down a few verses to Deuteronomy 18:18. 18, 18. Again, he says, "I will rise up for them. I will raise up for them." a prophet like you, like Moses, from among your brothers. He's going to be human, and I will put my words, that is the word of God, in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Verse 19, 
Whoever will not listen to my words that he, that he, that is, he the prophet shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. In other words, there will be punishment if you do not listen to the prophet that God sends. So that's about, give or take, 1400 BC, and for the next 1400 years, the Jews had many prophets that were sent to them. Hosea and Joel and Amos and Obadiah and Jonah and Micah and Nahum and Habakkuk and Zephaniah and Haggai and Zechariah and so forth and so on. Many prophets, but they were looking for the prophet, that prophet, the anointed Messiah, Christ, prophet. And even though there were countless other prophets, everybody was looking for the big prophet. And they thought that they spotted him when they saw John the Baptist. Notice what happens in John chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. If you have your scripture, please turn to this passage and notice how John the Baptist is asked if he is that prophet that Moses talked about. In John 1, 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, and they're sending these from Jerusalem because he is out in the wilderness of Judea baptizing at the Jordan River. So they send a contingent out there from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? John's response, verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. I'm not the anointed one, verse 21. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. And here we go. Are you the prophet? The prophet from Deuteronomy 18. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. It, it was a false alarm. He is not the prophet. So there's this promise or this prophecy. Uh, there's this expectation of the prophet coming. It wasn't John the Baptist, but you know it was Jesus. And do you know when and how the people finally came to the realization that Jesus was that prophet, the prophet? It happened in John chapter 6. Uh, Jesus there feeds the 5,000. Uh, that's 5,000 men plus women and children. They don't have anything except for five loaves and two fish. It was miraculous, and their bellies were filled. And, and, and they come to a conclusion after Jesus feeds them, that he's not just another prophet. He's like Moses. How is he like Moses? Well, remember when the children of Israel were in the wilderness and they were starving, what happened? Moses was the one that God used in order to feed the people for 40 years with manna from heaven and quail. He is like Moses, but he is different than Moses. And, 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 and it is said to Moses, the Lord your God will raise up a prophet like you, not identical to you, but like you. And they drew the connection, a light bulb went off in their head, and they said, huh, a big group of people being fed supernaturally. Here it happens again. Maybe this is the prophet that Moses was referring to. And when the people experienced the, the miraculous feeding no, notice the conclusion that they came to in John 6, 14. When the people saw the sign, the miracle that he had done, they said, this is indeed, no question about it, the prophet 
who has come into the world. Isn't that amazing? They have now come to this glorious conclusion that the fulfillment of Moses' prophecy has come true. They recognize Jesus as the prophet. You want to know the sad, almost comical reality and irony of this? They recognize him to be the prophet, but they don't listen to what he has to say. Uh, Their bellies are full. They are with him. He is preaching to them. He says to them, I am the bread of life. I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of God, you have no part in me. No one can come to me unless the Father which sent me draws him. All that come to me I will in no wise cast out. And, and he gives them this, this long uh, dissertation known as the bread of life discourse or the bread of life sermon. Longest one in, 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 longest chapter in all the New Testament, John chapter six. And at the conclusion of his preaching, even though they have concluded that he is the prophet, they choose not to listen to him. And not only do they not listen to him, but they walk away from him and they say, that's enough. We're not going to follow you anymore. Which is very consistent if you think about it because God has been sending prophets to his people since the beginning of time and what they have done with them consistently is to reject them and to stone them and to kill them. Well, here comes that prophet. You wouldn't expect them to be any different this time. They are no different this time. They walk away from him and follow him no more. Even some of his disciples, not apostles, but disciples, they walk away from him and follow him no more. And Jesus turns to the 12 and he says, all right, everybody's leaving. Are you also going to turn and depart? And Peter replies in John 6, 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You, you alone, have the words of eternal life. In other words, Lord, you are that prophet, and we are here to stay. Fast forward to the end of Jesus' life. He finishes his earthly ministry. He is arrested. He's falsely accused. He's murdered on a cross for our sins. He's raised to life three days later. The gospel is of first importance. He ascends into heaven. He's seated at the Father's right hand. He sends his Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. It comes upon the disciples. They are filled with boldness. They are filled with understanding. They preach, and on the day of Pentecost, after Peter's sermon, 3,000 people get saved. Soon thereafter, in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John went to pray, and they met a lame man on the way. And he held out his palms, and he asked them for alms, and this is what Peter did say. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, take up your bed and walk. And this guy, who was lame, in the name of Jesus, begins walking and leaping and praising God. And when that happens in Acts chapter 3, verse 11, the people look at it and they are utterly astonished, which is time now for Peter once again to step in and to deliver another sermon. And Jesus is 
has healed this man, and Peter is about to preach the gospel to them. And if you would please turn to Acts chapter 3, I want you to follow along a small portion of this sermon. I'm going to read verses 17 through 26 in Acts chapter 3, the sermon that Peter gives after this lame man has been healed. And notice what Peter is going to use as his springboard text or has his his the, the heart of his exegesis it's going to come from the prophecy of Deuteronomy chapter 18 and Peter is the middle of his sermon he says and now brothers i know that you acted in ignorance as did your also your rulers but what god foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his christ his anointed one his messiah would suffer that he thus fulfilled. The Christ has suffered and has entered into his glory. Now, what is the response that they are supposed to have in light of the preaching of the gospel? Verse 19, repent, turn from your sin. You're going in one direction. You're going in the wrong direction. You're on your way to hell. Turn around, do a U-turn. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. This is the good news of the gospel, that if you repent, your sins will be forgiven. What else will happen? Verse 20, the times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah appointed for you. And who is that? Jesus. Verse 21, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, small p, prophets long ago. Now he's going to bring in Moses in Deuteronomy 18 and talk about the prophet, capital P. Moses said, and we're Deuteronomy 18 here, Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. Verse 23, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. I'm not alone on this. And Moses wasn't alone in that. Verse 25, you are the sons of the prophets. You are Jewish And the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, you are Jewish, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That's Genesis chapter 12. Here's the conclusion. God, having raised up his servant, that is the resurrection, sent him to you first, to the Jew first, and also then to the Gentile. Why did God send this Jesus to you first? to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Do you see that the text that Peter used to preach in the temple on that day was Deuteronomy chapter 18? So, as we make an application now of this, this is not just a biblical theology connection, which is really cool, whereby you can follow the prophecy and then find the fulfillment and you can impress your friends by saying, hey, take a look at this. Although it is really cool and it is very interesting and it does verify the scriptures in a fascinating way. But that's not the main message of Deuteronomy 18 and it is not the main message of Peter. 
The main message is to turn you from your wickedness. The reality of Jesus being the mediatorial prophet is not just a theological fact, but it is a solemn warning for you to turn from your sin, to repent, and if you do not repent, God is going to deal with you in judgment. God is very serious about you listening to and obeying and acting upon the words of his prophet. God is so serious about you listening to what Jesus has to say. This is the one thing that he verifies on the Mount of Transfiguration. Matthew chapter 17, you know the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. They go up on a mountain, and the glory of Christ is unveiled. And there appear... Moses and Elijah. Moses as the representative of the law, Elijah as the representative of the prophets. And so you have these men on the mountain, and Peter comes up with this brilliant idea, and that is, it is really good for us to be here. Let us build three tabernacles or three booths so that we can just stay here. We're at the top of the mountain. It doesn't get any better than this. At that point, the voice of God thunders from heaven in Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, and God says, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. If you hear me preach for any length of time, you will note that I frequently will speak about the importance of the impeccability of Christ, the sinlessness of Christ, the fact that Christ was pleasing to God, the fact that Christ fulfilled the law, and and I will accentuate the fact that God, in very clear terms, said of his son, I am pleased with him. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, and it is important that I accentuate that. Why? Because in the doctrine of substitution or imputation, all that Jesus is, all of his perfection becomes ours. So if he in any way is flawed or if in any way God is not pleased with him and he becomes our savior, then when we accept him, God is not going to be pleased with us. But by virtue of the fact that he did all things that God required of him and God stated that he had done those things, We need to continue, when preaching the gospel, to accentuate the active obedience of Christ in fulfilling the law. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. However, what I often do not do, and I need to start doing this, is I need to accentuate and complete the final phrase, and that is, hear him. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. He is the fulfillment of the promise of the prophecy of the prophet of Deuteronomy 18. So what do you have? The problem is that we're groping our way through life blindly. and We need someone to give us some information. We need someone to give us some guidance. What is the prophecy? God is going to send the prophet, and indeed, he did. Which brings us now to the final point, and that is is the preaching or the preacher, whichever you prefer. What do prophets do? 
prophets prophesy. They proclaim the word of God. They preach the word of God. They declare the word of God and they declare the will of God. And I want to submit to you in my final point today that Jesus, the prophet, was the greatest preacher who ever lived. Why? Because he fully and completely revealed the Father to us. There were other prophets. Listen to me. Other prophets. Everything that all of those other prophets said was true and it was helpful. But never once was it ever complete. It was always partial. It was true, but it was always partial. When it comes to Jesus, the great prophet, he gives us the complete, full revelation of God. John 1.18. I'm reading it from the NIV. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, it is in closest relationship with the Father. He has made him known. So no one has ever seen God. God is spirit. You never will, in the sense is, is of a physical sense, see God. Uh, he has been made known through nature. He has been made known through the prophets. He's been made known through his word. But, but that's not the complete revelation of God. The complete revelation of God, let me read it again, John 1.18, comes from Jesus. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. In other words, apart from Jesus, we cannot and we will not fully know God. But Jesus the prophet came and he showed us and he told us everything that we need to know about the Father. And I hope you're with me now. And he did it perfectly. He did it well. He doeth all things well. So in John chapter 7, Jesus travels to the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Uh, while he is there, uh, he, he shows up intentionally a, a little bit late so as not to precipitate a premature crisis. He shows up a little bit late, and as is his custom, he teaches or preaches. And, and as he is preaching, the Jewish religious leaders are really fed up with what he has to say. And so what they do is they send essentially some police to arrest him. But not everyone who hears him preach in John chapter 7 is fully convinced that he is evil. In fact, there are some mixed reviews. Some people like what he has to say and, and some people don't. Listen as I make my way through John chapter 7 verses 40 through 46 as to uh, how this attempt to, to arrest Jesus unfolded. Uh, John seven forty. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet, and indeed he was, prophet, capital P. Others said, this is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, and he was. They got it right. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Uh, has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was. In other words, there's a group of people saying, yeah, I mean, he, he might be saying some nice things, but 
The truth of the matter is, is he's not the Christ and he can't be the Christ. And the reason he can't be the Christ is because the Christ had to come from the line of David and had to be born in Bethlehem. And since Jesus is from Galilee, all right, picture the map in your mind. To the north is Galilee, the region of Galilee. In Galilee is this little town called Nazareth. And then the middle is Samaria, and then down south is Judea, and in Judea you have Jerusalem, and then just a few miles away from Jerusalem you have Bethlehem. And there are guys who are listening to Jesus, and undoubtedly Jesus would be speaking with a Galilean accent, and he was known as Jesus of Nazareth, and really, can any good thing come from Nazareth? And some are saying, hey, maybe he is that prophet. And maybe he is the Christ. And other people said, well, you know, it's impossible for that to be true. The reason that's impossible to be true is because the Christ has to be born in Bethlehem and Jesus is born in Galilee. Hey, you knuckleheads didn't do your research. He was born, born, born in Bethlehem. He spends a very short time there and then moves to Egypt, and then he moves after he leaves Egypt to the hometown of Joseph and Mary to the north in Galilee in Nazareth. But they think he's born in Nazareth. He wasn't born in Nazareth. Merry Christmas. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And so their argument here actually they're actually helping or substantiating the fact that Jesus is the Christ. Yes, he's born in Bethlehem from David. So, verse 43, there was a division among the people over him. Uh, Side note, do you know that most arguments and most times that there are divisions, it's not just a matter of preference and it is not just a matter of opinion, but it is usually the case that one side is objectively wrong. And this side that is arguing that Jesus wasn't from Bethlehem, they were objectively wrong. Verse 44, some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers, this is the officers in the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, the officers then came to the chief priest and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? You had one job. You had one job. It wasn't your job to determine his innocence or his guilt. Uh, uh, You just cuff him and bring him in, and we'll let the DA um, work through the case right now. But you had one job. That was to arrest him. I want to know, why did you not arrest him? And here's the response of the officers in verse 46. The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. So you're telling me that even though you had a responsibility to arrest him and to bring him in, you chose not to do it because of the way that he spoke. That is correct. No one ever spoke like this man. So as we close today, what I would like to do is I would like you to obey the voice of God the Father who says, listen to him, hear him. And I want you to contemplate some of the words of Jesus. 
And I want you to conclude, along with these officers who were supposed to have arrested him, that no one ever spoke like this man. Uh, See if you can come to that same conclusion. What did he say? He said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He said, If anyone forces you to go a mile, go with him two miles. He said, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He said, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. He said, if you forgive others, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. No one ever spoke like this man. What did he say? He said, ask and it will be given you. And seek and you will find. And knock and it will be opened to you. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Nobody ever spoke like this man. Well, what did he say? He said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Listen to him. Hear him. What did he say? No one ever spoke like this man. He said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? He said that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Nobody ever spoke like this man. Nobody ever preached like this man. Listen to him. What did he say? He said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he said, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What did he say? He said, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. He spoke in the Gospels, that is in the writings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but he speaks throughout the entirety of the Scripture. In Acts chapter 1, it talks about all that Jesus both began to do and teach. So even when you move into the book of Acts, Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And he says to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Listen to him. Nobody ever spoke like this man who said, I and the Father are one. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. I am the vine. To speak 
from a cross was nearly impossible. Because in order to, to project your voice, you, you didn't have anything to stand on, and therefore your, your, your words, each word would be grueling and agonizing. What did he say? Let me tell you, no one has ever spoken like this man. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Woman, behold your son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thirst. It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Nobody ever spoke like this man. Listen to him. What did he say? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Surely I am coming soon. You must be born again. Nobody ever spoke like this man. What did he say? Listen to him. Hear him. He said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Can't arrest him. Can't do it. Can't turn my back on him. Can't walk away from him. Can't disown him. Can't deny him. Because no one ever spoke like this man. The prophet. The anointed prophet. The Christ. The Messiah. Hear him. Listen to him. Father in heaven, I feel as though I could have continued to recite words which your son uttered. And Lord, your people could have listened endlessly because, Lord, we delight to hear from that prophet. But even in the short sample that they received today, Lord, our hearts are, are large with joy because you've communicated with such accuracy and such clarity and such conviction and such hope through your Son, the prophet. And now, God, I pray that you would give us grace to be more attentive to the words of the prophet. I pray that we would be more diligent to read the words of the prophet. God, I pray that we would be empowered by your Spirit to do what the prophet tells us to do. And so in Jesus' name, Lord, will you give us ears to hear and cause us, Lord, please, to delight in your prophet, your Christ, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.